I've got your attention. Okay, we'll start in uh, verse 7 of uh, Luke chapter 14. Now he told the parable to those who were invited and he noticed how they chose the places of honour, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honour, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him who has invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honoured in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbours lest they also invite you in return, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be paid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet, and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought first yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servants, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, you have commanded what has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. All right, we've got audio, we're good? Fantastic. Thanks heaps to Luke for stepping in today. I think we've had some rostering issues, so thanks for bearing with us. It'd be great if you could turn to that passage in your Bibles. Luke chapter 14, and as we do, I'm going to open in prayer for us. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word, the Bible. And as we read and consider it now, we pray that you'd help us to accept it as it is, not as the word of man, but as the word of God, which is at work in us who believe. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it is sometimes said that when we get to heaven, we'll be as surprised by who is there as by who isn't there. Now, this part of Luke's Luke's gospel that we're diving into this morning, it's very much concerned with who will be in God's kingdom and who won't be in God's kingdom. So the kind of things that Luke records for us in really chapter 13 to 17 of his gospel are all about the surprising people who won't be in the kingdom. So think those 
uh, wealthy religious heavyweights, uh, they're actually the, the, the least likely to be invited into God's kingdom. And by contrast, it's those who religious society has overlooked. So the poor and the, the marginalized, the sinners, they're actually far more likely to be welcomed into God's kingdom. So that's a bit of the, the, the background theme to what's happening here with this event. Now, in chapter 14, Jesus is at dinner at a prominent religious leader's house. And things have already gotten awkward. It's a Sabbath day, and there are strict religious rules which go beyond what, what God requires in his word um, of what was expected to be done and not done on the Sabbath day. Now, Jesus has just healed a man, and no one has had the guts either to say to Jesus, that's wrong to do that work on the Sabbath, or to say, well done, Jesus, for doing that act of mercy on the Sabbath. And so ideological battle lines have now been drawn between Jesus on the one hand and the religious heavyweights on the other. Now, we're going to look at the two parables that follow this event. And just to say, if you're unfamiliar with the idea of parables in the Bible, uh, parables were a form of teaching that Jesus often used. He didn't invent them, but Jesus often used this uh, regular way of teaching, using everyday scenarios and everyday ideas, but with a, a deeper meaning for those who really heard what he was saying. So let's look at that first parable in verse 7. Uh, and we're going to call this heading, The Honor of Being Humble. If you've got your little service pamphlet, you'll find a spot there where you can take notes if you'd like. The first shorter parable comes off the back of something Jesus has noticed at dinner. Look with me, please, at verse 7 of chapter 14. It says that Jesus told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose places of honor. Now, you've got to know that this meal wasn't just a social event. Jesus wasn't just invited for a barbecue because he was mates with the host. This kind of gathering that Jesus is at was, was called a symposia. That's where, where we get the word symposium from. And it's, a, it's an event where a prominent and even controversial figure was invited to speak and be quizzed by the host's guests. And so as a result, it was an event to be seen at. And the closer you sat to the host and to the evening's entertainment, which is what Jesus was, the more important you were seen to be. Now, this concern for reputation is actually the same thing that stopped anyone from saying anything to Jesus' questions about the Sabbath and the healing earlier in verse 3 and 5. And so that's what leads Jesus to tell this parable. There's a, there's a hard problem at work here in, four, in the, chapter 14. So let's look at the parable. It's not complicated. At one level, it just seems like good advice. If you're at an important function, like a wedding, for example, Jesus says, pick a seat way down the table. That way, the host might spot you and come over to you and say, I'm so sorry, what are you doing down here? I've saved a table for you up near the top. Please come and join me. Which is far better then sitting near the head table and the host kind of coming over awkwardly to say to you, listen, I'm really sorry, um, but this seat is reserved for someone else. You see, they're, they're waiting at the door. They're quite important. Um, I've got a seat for you down near the kitchen door. It's in a draft and behind a pillar, but I think you'll be more comfortable there. I wonder if you've ever had a similar experience at the movies. Sometimes you walk into the cinema in the dark and you walk up to where you think your seat is and you see someone else sitting in your seat. 
you look at your ticket, look at the seat number, and you realize, oh, they've got the wrong seat. And you kind of have to do that awkward thing where you say, I'm really sorry, I think you're in my seat. And if it's a genuine mistake, they might awkwardly get up and do the walk of shame over to their, the, the correct seat. Or if they're trying to, you know, scab a better view, they might, uh, you know, uh, kick back a bit. Um, I've done that walk of shame myself when I've misread my ticket and seat numbers. What's the point Jesus is trying to make? It's there for us in verse 11. Have a look with me. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, of course, this being a parable, Jesus is not just talking about social etiquette or, you know, a hack for getting the best seats at parties. This parable probably would have gotten everyone's attention far more than it does for us. And the reason for that is that we actually value humility as a virtue. It's got something to do with the effect of the gospel on our culture for the last 2,000 years. But it wasn't like that in Jesus' day. Humility wasn't valued the way we value it today. In the, ca- the classical world, humility was almost considered to be a character flaw. It was to be avoided and to be despised. And so for Jesus to be encouraging humility would have sounded grossly inappropriate. Exaltation was the goal, not humility. So listen to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. Honor and reputation are among the pleasantest things. Through each person's imagining that he has the qualities of an important person, and all the more when others say so. And by contrast, Aristotle says, those who humble themselves seem to admit to being inferiors, adding that even a dog doesn't bite someone sitting down. So for Jesus to encourage humility here would have been jaw-droppingly countercultural. Now, verse 11 also starts to hint at why humility must be aspired to and not despised. And it's really the sting in the tail of the parable because verse 11 is not about parties at all. It's actually about how God will ultimately treat the proud and the humble. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Of course, this raises the question of why humility matters so much to God. Why is God so opposed to human pride? Why will he humble the proud and exalt the humble? Well, Jesus now turns to his host, and he gives him probably the most... um, inappropriate advice he could give. So have a look with me at verse 12, and we'll see what Jesus says to his host. We're going to call this the most selfless invitation. And I think in verse 12 to 14, really, this this is the key to unpacking both parables. So verse 12, Jesus also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet... Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and be repaid. And when you give a feast, invite the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just.
Now, it's always a good idea when you read the Bible to notice which words are repeated. I'm sure you notice the word repay or repaid repeated very, very often here. Gives us a clue that all what we're saying here about humility hinges on that word, that idea. So if social advancement was so important in the culture, why on earth would you invite people to dinner who could never repay the favor? And keep in mind, especially the upper part of Roman society in these days, which these guys would have been a part, it, it turned on this constant cycle of I scratch your back, you scratch mine. Uh, it was called patronage. It's how it all worked. It's how people climbed the social ladder. But now Jesus recommends inviting those who cannot repay you. Now, just to note, these are not those who are struggling financially or on a disability pension alone. When Jesus says you are to invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, these are also the ones who are not only financially but physically incapable of repaying the invitation in any way. They might have to be carried in. Perhaps they might have to be helped with their meal. They can do nothing. So how could Jesus possibly recommend inviting such dinner guests to such an important host? Well, Jesus says it simply depends on where you would rather get your reward from. From your rich neighbors or from God? Because the generosity that God rewards is the kind that is truly selfless. Now, of course, what Jesus has just said is open to misunderstanding. It's, it's not that God is offering sort of heavenly grants for people who want to open soup kitchens. So we really have to thank God for the goose in verse 14, who, verse 15, who either hasn't heard Jesus properly, or he's trying to sound like a pious know-it-all, or he's recently read a book on conflict resolution, and he's you know, trying out what he's learned to try and de-escalate the situation. And so he says, uh, verse 15, when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And of course he's right as far as he goes. But it's clear there's something missing. And so that statement prompts Jesus to make his point crystal clear to those who are willing to hear it in the next parable. And so Jesus tells the second parable from verse 16. Uh, to answer the statement. Now, I understand the details of the parable are very typical of that part of the world at that time. There were no phones, there, were no, there was no refrigeration, there were no watches. So it was normal to give out one invitation uh, to confirm numbers, confirm a date and time, and then send out another invitation when everything was finally ready. So in verse 17, everything is ready, and the servant is sent out into the town to all the guests to say, it's time. We're opening the doors. Only as he does, he starts to hear excuses from the people who've already RSVP'd. The excuses vary, but they all seem a little bit off. In verse 18, one guest has bought a field. And can't come to the banquet because, in verse 18, he must go out and see it. Now, let me ask you, who buys land first without going to see it? Remember, there were no property websites in the first century. And if a man did buy some land sight unseen, well, surely it will be there the next day. 
In verse 19, we find another who said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Now, oxen were uh, plowing animals. They were agricultural animals. They were usually sold in pairs. So a five yoke of oxen is ten oxen, ten matched and balanced pairs. So they don't pull too, too much to the right or to the left. They can actually plow in a straight line. So, and you've got to know, this was actually quite a lot for a farmer in the ancient world. One or two yoke would have been absolutely adequate for the average farm size. So this is a huge pulling team. It's a significant financial investment. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, the word for examine can also mean to try out or to prove. And so the question is, can he really have bought the equivalent of five, you know, Massey Ferguson tractors? without having his mechanic go and check them over first to make sure they're mechanically sound and they actually turn over. These excuses aren't very good. It's kind of in the realm of the dog ate my homework. In verse 20, it gets worse, though. There are a few different interpretations uh, given for this honeymooning husband. Some more understanding than others. But remember that in the ancient world, marriages were organized up to a year in advance, perhaps more. So could he really have mixed up his dates that badly? There's definitely something fishy about this excuse. Some commentators have even suggested the man is euphemistically choosing sex over honoring his prior commitment to the invitation. All in all, these are shameful excuses, and they would not even have been considered in real life. But what is a host to do when the people he's invited who have RSVP'd at the very point of opening the doors say they've got better things to do? Well, in verse 21, the first thing he does is he gets angry, which I suppose is an understandable reaction. He gets angry at their shameful rejection of his invitation. Then he tells his servant to go and do something unbelievable. He tells his servant to go and bring in the sort of people Jesus described earlier. People from all around the town. And so he does. He goes into the town and brings in the poor and the blind and the crippled and the lame. But there's a problem. Look with me at verse 22. The servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Well, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. You see, he's ensuring that there isn't a seat or a scrap of food available for those who rejected his invitation. And notice, the servant had to compel them to come in. Always wondered how many people you might find in a hedge. But a man sleeping rough under a highway bridge outside of town might might have needed a fair bit of convincing that he was just being invited to the best party of the year. So yes, the servant had to compel them to come in. No, really, he wants you. These were people who could never possibly repay the master of the house. And yet they were invited. And the contrast with those who were invited, but shall never taste the banquet, is striking.
Now, I don't think it takes much imagination to realize who the characters in Jesus' story are actually meant to be. The master of the house, of course, is God. The banquet is the resurrection of the just or the resurrection of the righteous from verse 14. In other words, it's a welcome into God's kingdom forever. And yes, Revelation does actually describe it like a wedding banquet. Those who were invited but gave poor excuses are those who have been shown the way to God's kingdom but refused to take it. In Jesus' day, there would have been the ones who knew their Old Testament well, perhaps even those who heard Jesus speak, but who didn't value what they were hearing. And today, it's those who hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but who think little of it, because their value system is completely opposed to God's value system. Like those in the parable, they are self-absorbed. They are egocentric narcissists who only care for their own possessions and pleasures. They're important people, so important that they owe no one else anything, even God, but demand the respect and regard of others. They are proud. And perhaps worst of all is that these people don't realize that they themselves are no better and have nothing more than the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Because, friends, when it comes to God, the truth is we have nothing to offer. No matter how much we have, no matter how big our bank balance is, no matter what people in the world think of us, we actually have nothing that makes God want to love us, makes God want to give us anything. Who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid, says the Bible? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. It's from Romans chapter 11, verse 35, if you're taking notes. God has everything. What are you going to give to someone who has everything? What could they possibly want from you? Which is what makes the thrust of the parable so marvelous. Because the ones who finally get to sit around the the table and enjoy the banquet are those who know they have nothing to offer, who have been told time and again by society that they have nothing to offer, but gratefully accept the invitation. God sees them in their poverty, in their emptiness, and chooses them, sets his love upon them, and compels them to come in for no other reason than that he's got a banquet he wants to share. These are people who might even take some convincing that the, kingdom, that the king of heaven wants them around his table. But they hear the gospel, they respond in faith because that's all they've got. Now, I've got to ask you at this point which category you find yourself in. What are you doing with the invitation to God's heavenly banquet? Are you making excuses, choosing stuff, or experiences, or reputation, or even sex over a place at the table? Or have you come humbly with nothing in your hands, in wonder and amazement that God would choose you? Have you come to the cross of Christ to leave your sins there and to be guaranteed a place in heaven forever? If you've not done that, let me encourage you, don't delay. Maybe do something about it today. 
you'd like some help doing that, chat to a trusted Christian friend. Come and chat to me after the service. We'd love to help you and pray with you, uh, answer questions. But don't make excuses. Because there is a point, like we read in the parable, where the master will shut out those who have heard but refuse to respond. It really is the best invitation in the world. But I hope you can see now, as we've gone through these two parables together, why Jesus encourages humility. It's simply because the culture of God's kingdom is based on humility. It's based on the least of these being the ones who actually receive it. And that's because the gospel itself is based on humility. So the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, that Jesus, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The gospel is about humility, friends. Our salvation required the humility of God's Son. And it requires our humility to admit that we are sinners and to ask God to have mercy on us. It it takes humility to admit that we deserve nothing from God and couldn't possibly ever repay what he's done for us in Christ. It takes humility to take our cue from Jesus and to live constantly saying, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is why pride and arrogance in a Christian is so ugly. It's like living with a deformity because it denies the heart and character of the gospel that we claim has saved us. We think we are better than anyone else. But humility is hard, isn't it? Humility is hard in our world. It's not the way our world operates. Of course, we value humility. Of course, we do. But we, we tend to value it more in others, you know, when, when they are humble so that it serves me some way. Like, you know, after church this morning when someone says, no, no, you please go in front of me in the coffee line. That's the kind of humility we like. Yeah, I know now we're going to go outside afterwards and there's going to be no one near the front of the counter because everyone's going, no, no, after you. Christians in queues. Our world encourages vanity and conceit, doesn't it? You just think of social media, how it encourages narcissism at at the deepest level, driving trends in fashion and personal grooming and even cosmetic surgery, all the while feeding anxiety about what people think of me. Every ad we see screams, you need this, you deserve this, you can have this and it'll make your life better. The air we breathe is full of self-actualization and self-righteousness and self-discovery and self-sufficiency. All we need for fulfillment is right here, we're told. Just got to find it. And we are sold a lie that I am all that I need. And of course, this affects the way we perceive others because of course we can't all be top of the heap. And so we're taught to judge others based on the same criteria. We judge others about how they dress or where they live or what school they went to or what car they drive. You just think of the reality show that's on at the moment, Beauty and the Geek. 
where a 20-something Harry Potter enthusiast only matters once he's had a makeover. When I was about 13 or 14, I had the huge privilege of being involved in a, in a, a holiday club that our church ran for kids. And so every morning for a week during the winter holidays, we would play games with kids, uh, primary school kids, uh, re- read the Bible and talk about the Bible together with them, sing and play games and hang out. It was great. But then after lunch, the leadership team would pack everything into a high-ass bus, and we'd drive about 30 minutes um, out of town to an informal settlement, another kind of place where the houses are single rooms built out of the sort of mismatched timbers and bits of coro that the, the builders had left behind on their building sites. Places were built right on the sand, usually with a sad and tattered piece of carpet um, covering the floor. And that single room served for washing and cooking and eating and sleeping and everything else. And they just as far as the eye could see. And when the little kids heard us coming, they would rush out to greet us. Many of them had no shoes and they had badly fitting hand-me-down clothes. And this was in wintertime in a place where it doesn't get much warmer than 15 degrees in winter when the sun's out. Many of them had colds, and they would run up to you and throw their arms around you and leave a lovely um, shiny badge across the front of your jumper. And for a week, we played with them every afternoon and sang with them and laughed with them and danced with them and ate with them and told them about Jesus. It was great. About 10 years later, though, I find myself working in a situation where our clients included royalty, uh, music and film stars, famous artists, owners of Formula One teams, well-known business magnates, and the families of famous people throughout history. Uh, One client I remember paid with something I'm sure I'll never see again. It was a a black anodized aluminum Amex credit card. It had no limit. And I punched, on that day, I punched the most zeros I think I'd ever punched into an FPOS machine that I ever will. But here's the thing. Our world says that those people with their limitless credit cards and celebrity status, that they matter. And that the barefoot, snot-nosed kids living in shacks don't matter. Why is that? Well, it's because those with money and status have the potential to offer me something. Even if it's just to bask in their hallowed presence for a few minutes so that years later I can tell my same old stories about how I once met famous people. And it somehow makes me just a little bit better than the next person. But those who had nothing, well, they actually had nothing to offer me. But wait, because I had nothing to offer God, and yet he gave everything for me. So why do we think that those people matter more than them? In fact, the truth is they all matter to Jesus. Because status and wealth and all of these things aren't what God values. What will separate the the rich and the poor and the somebodies and the nobodies from one another is what they finally do with the invitation to the great heavenly banquet. The rich and the poor, the somebodies and the nobodies, all matter to Jesus, and thank God that they do, or I would still be dead in my sins. 
excuse me. And so the question that remains for the Christians to ask themselves is whether I will be humble enough that all of them matter to me too, the rich and the poor, the nobodies and the somebodies, that I will reflect Jesus' humility by not serving myself in any way, but by loving generously and with no expectation of self-advancement everyone God puts in front of me. Now, this takes a seismic shift in our thinking, a new value system that's based not on the world, but on the gospel. For everyone who humbles himself will be exalted, and everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. In verse 14, you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, but you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And so the ones who must matter most in my life not myself, but the Lord and the ones he puts in front of me on any given day. Whoever they are, the only person who doesn't need to matter is me. And the reason I can say that is because I matter to Jesus. And that's more than I could ever have dreamed. Would you pray with me?